Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. This is part two of the 100th episode of Getting Better Acquainted. Part one came out on Wednesday. You may prefer to listen to part one before you listen to part two. Either way, I hope you enjoy the show. (laughs) I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Very good. (laughs) Instantaneously uh, spontaneous. Right. So... Today we're getting better acquainted with Getting Better Acquainted. Hello. Um, hello, yeah, exactly. Hello. Hello. There we go. So we've got a room full of people. Later on we'll have a room full of friends playing. Uh, and this is the 100th episode of my podcast series where I try to get better acquainted with the people I know from my closest friends and family to people I just met at a party. Yeah, so at this point I wanted to talk about some of the people and places that Getting Better Acquainted has taken me to. The second time I went to Edinburgh, it was different. The game had changed a little bit for me. I was going to do a show with Spark London and I, I knew some people there who were in doing shows in a different kind of way than the first time around. And I got to meet a guy called Peter Agrero who does true storytelling and he was programming the storytelling at Grant's True Stories where Spark was doing our show and this is a bit of a, a conversation with him, a bit of conversation with him. My mother's heard me tell this story. Yeah. Uh, I once told it at a big show in New York. Like we, there was almost a thousand people there, and, and she was in the audience. And it was right before Christmas, God. and she came. It was at the actually at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I was I was up there on the stage. My mother's there, and I'm telling the story, like washing our dirty laundry in front of all these strangers, yeah. and she was there just smiling and but crying because it took this horrible memory and made it something positive. And because it, if I didn't go through that, if we didn't have that terrible Christmas, yeah. then like I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't be do, here yeah. today. You yeah, know, well, so like to take something really negative and make it positive. Well, I think so. it was beautiful what you did with it. And, and also, you, I, I'm, I'm sure that like your mum would, would not mind hearing that story because it's not a negative story about your mum. It's about how no. much you love her and about yeah. how much she loves you. She I didn't mean, do anything wrong. No. You know? Well, I mean, I imagine like the, the, the person who would be difficult to have in the audience is probably your father like not wanting yeah, to get a, it's too a deep good thing. it's but, a good thing he doesn't come to anything I do exactly <laughs> I, I have a problem with that like I tell stories about my mother and they're quite complicated yeah. uh, and I love her and that but yeah. she that I have issues with her in a yeah. way that you know you know, every person and, does and, relationships and so, are complicated and so it does feel weird to put those that stuff into the public domain and, and know that she may hear them and yeah. just uh, like have to deal with that but yeah. I guess the way I kind of figure it is you just have to like if it happened to you it's your story true you don't tell their stories and but yeah you get to you tell do it yours. through your perspective yeah you know I learned that early on one of the first stories I ever told in a performance capacity was about a road trip I had with a girl and in that story, I talked about some details about her personal life that were none of my business. Yeah. That, that, that I knew that we shared, but they weren't part of the story. They weren't part of my experience. Mm-hmm. It was her experience. And that was a big lesson because she got really mad at me. Yeah. And it was a big lesson about learning what is your story. I feel like I feel like immediate family, parents, siblings, everything's fair game because you grew up in the same house. You yeah. know? And like good, bad, or indifferent. Like, those those stories are, are yours to tell. But then, like, girlfriends or boyfriends or 
even cousins or friends, you have to be a little more careful about what is your experience and what is theirs and what's your business to share and what is yeah. theirs, you know? Well, I think that's true, although I, I make the distinction with my family of, like, what happened to me when I was in the house with them, mm -hmm. I can talk about, so yeah. I can talk about them in that moment. Yeah. I can't talk about them after I left. After, yeah. I can't talk about that what happened when I wasn't sense. there. You know, that's, my, yeah. that's my rule. So that's Peter Aguero, who I got to meet up in Edinburgh, and I met a number of cool people on that trip. I met Eddie Pepitone, who's also a podcast hero of mine, but I didn't include his in it, because can't include everything. Also through Getting Better Acquainted I ended up doing uh, a residency at the Invisible Picture Palace and doing a, doing stuff there which when this episode comes out there will have just been five, five episodes in a row of all the live shows. I mean I don't know who's going to listen to that like five days of hours like how, who's got time to listen to the show already but uh, that's what I'm doing. And also I uh, ended up on Radio 5 Live. This is an email from someone who I don't know personally. Hello Dave. Congratulations on 108 episodes. I saw you asking on Facebook for people's favourite parts and here's mine. I think some of the best moments arise when people are talking about something they're truly passionate about and a certain animation enters their voice. This, for example, happens in the following. Episode 66, Iris talking about local history. Could you define psychogeography for people who might not have heard Oh yeah, well psychogeography is actually the, the act of wandering across your environment and engaging with those kind of strange things that you see when you're walking around. Like you might see a shadow of, a, of an advertisement on the side of a building that goes back to Victorian days and all those disjunctures that you see when you're walking around and those strange forgotten areas that actually might take you back to the Industrial Revolution. They've never changed and how... There's so much discontinuity in the landscape and it starts to make you feel a, bit, a little bit unsettled. Yeah. And you start to think there's more to this street, just this boring street in Coventry, than meets the eye. And you start looking almost like the skin beneath, you know, you start looking beneath the surface. This email that I'm queued that up from is from uh, a person called Eve who, who has a site called Eve Proofreads which people can check out if they want proofreading. I don't know her personally, but she actually quoted those strange forgotten areas, discontinuity in the landscape. You start looking beneath the surface. So clearly that episode had, a, had a, an effect on her. And she, she says, 78, Louise's passion for dance and her engagement with feminism in terms of it. So here we go. Dance is a conversation. And as with words, there are sort of vocabulary that keeps repeating itself okay. so you sort of recognize it from different dance styles and so is dance a conversation between you and your partner or you and the people watching you that's, dance? that's a really interesting point i was looking to take workshops from a really inspiring teacher from america called justin riley who talks about your partnerships being between you and your partner between you and the music and between you and actually the floor because the floor is the one constant in your dancing okay so when you ask whether it's a partnership with you and your partner or with the audience, I think there's definitely different ways of doing it. If I went to a competition, I would be partnered with my partner, partnered with the music, and then also putting on a show, and I would be playing to the galleria. But if I'm just dancing blues at a social night, it's me and my partner, it's me and the music. I might hear something, they might hear something, we might embellish upon something we hear together, I might be doing my own thing. And, you know, you say, is it just throwing around shapes and stuff? Well, at the end of the day, if I've just got hold of one hand, I can do pretty much whatever I like, <laughs> providing at some point I go, oh, sorry, are we dancing together? 
So there is there is a lot of freedom. I think that's the reason why I love blues dancing so much because there is that freedom. There is that lack of. There's a lot more space in the music. There's a lot more space in the partnership, and there's a lot more freedom of expression generally. So you, you like to have different partners. If that sounds like I'm okay, implying something I'm gonna, else. I'm going to let you carry on. But, but, but yeah, let me com- complete it. Like, you like to dance with different people. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to kind of go with one person and develop a kind of dance thing with them. And is that because you like kind of to talk, like like this, like this project, I like to talk to, to lots, lots of different, different people. people. That's a really, I really like the way you put that. I would say that all dancing is social. Right. If you want to take it to competition or performance level, you need a fixed partner because you need that level of trust and that level of commitment, practice, knowing each other, mm-hmm. knowing how each other responds to different songs, different situations. Yeah, I would imagine so. But I think the thing is, is in London there is something like 200,000 dancers Something like that. Yeah. And they wouldn't call themselves dancers. They go to a modern drive class, they go to a Lindy Hopped class, they do something else. They are social dancing. The dancing is social. Mm-hmm. You can't distinguish between the social element and the dancing element. It's not just a conversation in physical movement. You are going to see your mates. You are going to hang out. So when I sort of like say, oh, I've got multiple partners or whatever, and you sort of like <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and all that kind of thing, you, what you're actually saying is that I... I dance because I want to be sociable and I pride myself on being a social dancer like I'll always say yes to a dance I'll ask people I don't know to dance I'll never turn down a beginner even if this is their first lesson and I think that this is sort of why sort of the social element is so important to me and sort of like where my focus is is I want to be able to dance with anybody no matter what their ability and I want them to feel what I felt when I first started dancing which is that amazing sort of moment where you go so that's sort of like why it comes down to the multiple partners thing definitely she says I liked number 84 the writing group the discussion of whether writing can be taught was particularly interesting to me probably because that's part of what I do professionally it also shares that quality of people speaking enthusiastically about what matters to them the way you all speak so naturally together is lovely the same happens in 61 when Jen is talking about her writing I'm not going to play Jen I'm going to play the writing group so how do we feel about the idea of Success. It's a different question, actually. The other one was too long. What is it? How many people around the table know what success would be for them? Because I don't know if I know. No, I don't. Yeah. If I finish a piece, that's that's success. Finish, finishing a piece for you yeah, is, I is think success. There are that's good. Different levels of success as well. Like you say, just finish something, complete something that you're happy with. That's yeah. one type of success, and yeah. then. What generally maybe be considered a success is money and, you know, making a living of it or being s- successful in the way that you're known as, as a writer. Yeah. But, so, there, yeah, you kind of, in a way, have to first define what success is. Because I, I find that success is a what used to be a com- much more complicated thing for me than it is now. So it used to be I used to have these very, very lofty ambitions mm-hmm. and I used to always be frustrated that I was nowhere near achieving them. Whereas now I'm like, if I can make enough money from making art of some kind, writing music, whatever, to not have to work and to be able to do my Mm. real work, writing, then if I get that right, and I've got an audience, because I think an audience is important, like an audience seems to me to be what 
most people on one level are thinking about when they're talking about success because mm. what's the point in writing or is there a point in writing if you don't have an audience yes so I mean it took me a long time to figure out whether or not I had any wish for an audience so I've written my whole life but not to be read just because that's how I think and that's how I manage myself is just through a lot of writing and I've spent the last year struggling over like well why do you you know so what's this about why do you want an audience why do you want to publish what is that about so I think there is a point but um, I think that's the difference between maybe I've only recently started to call myself a writer that what I do is writing because I think I'm now looking to get published. And well, you're blogging now, so you are looking for an audience to yeah. a certain extent. But yeah, so I think there is. I, I don't know. I, I can see that for some people there is a point. There isn't, I don't think, a point for me to write a story if nobody else reads it no. but me. No, I, I think it depends a bit what you're writing. Yeah, that's right. You write non-fiction. Yeah. yeah. So maybe there's a fiction non-fiction divide on that. I think I, I, I've always loved reading published books. I've always loved books, and I, that's what has always inspired me. Is I wanted to do that. I wanted to copy what make I a was, book. Yeah, make a book. Yeah, so so creates what I was loving so much. So the end product for me is a book on a shelf. Yeah, or a book that you download electronically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a book. That's an aberration. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's always that thing as well of like when you see a writer in an interview on TV and they sound very intelligent and you're like, would I be intelligent or not if I was there and you start imagining would it? I not be. I'm terrified <laughs> of that idea. I think you'd be all right. You would be all right. Yeah. I think you'd be I fine. You'd have media training. can't speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can write. Well, yeah, but this, is the, this is the end of a few camera. days of writing late and drinking and stuff and, 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 and so you, I'm sure you would be able to speak better on TV. Yeah. I think success for me would be writing something that readers enjoyed enough to want to read something else by me. Ah, yeah. that's yeah, a that's great nice. definition. It was like the, one of the first kind of multi-people conversations that I've done for the show, and I've done a few of them over the time. So she goes on to say, it's also delightful when you come upon something that you had in common with someone that you hadn't previously been aware of. There's a really joyful moment of that with Ruben and your parallel youth. So she's referring to a an episode where I was talking to somebody and we discovered that we'd both been to school like in, and grown up and been adolescent at the same time in the same clubs but not known each other at that moment. I haven't picked that, that clip because you know, you've got to have limits to how much you can have in. She says, my partner Peter also listens and when I mentioned I was writing this email he wanted to, me to add his favourite. He really liked the one where you spoke to the woman that does yoga in prisons. You know, I don't, I don't go in that often but it's amazing how quickly you get used to it. It's all done in a very friendly way. It's not, you do get searched because you have to be but it's not, it's never been done with like any element of suspicion. Yeah. If you know what I mean, it's always... It's just part of the job. Yeah, and, it's just part you know, of the you're job. You're both professionals um, and this is what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the prison officers I've worked with, you know, I mean, sometimes they just get on with it. Sometimes they're a massive laugh, like everyone, but it's always been very, very, like, very, very professional. From the prisoners as well, I've always felt like everyone in that environment has respected that I'm in there to do a job, to do a specific thing. And even if they haven't thought very much of yoga, sometimes, you know, sometimes people think it's a bit weird. Sometimes people, often people think it's for girls to get that. A lot, a lot. But what I always say when someone says that is that yoga was actually introduced to the UK by the British Army, who picked it up in India and made it part of basic training back in kind of the 20s. Mm. It was great seeing this kind of, this thing that doesn't really happen in prisons where everyone's quite, you know, closed off and seeing this kind of softening mm. 
and just sit together and I've I've always like consistently found it a really really positive experience always really loved working with the guys I don't think I've ever been in a class I mean I don't teach but I'm kind of there and kicking about because I'm not qualified um, now you're talking about it as well I mean it seems to me actually I mean although it might when people hear the idea of yoga and prisoners together mm. it might seem a strange fit the space of inside a prison is only about in your cell is only about right for something like yoga yeah. you can't do something you, you can't run you know run yeah. or, or any other kind of exercise yeah, particularly exactly. in that space yeah. exactly i mean you'll get you'll get some access to the gym yeah, um course, but no. i mean yeah it's, it's perfect because i mean a yoga mat is only it's only kind of the space that you take up just lying on the floor almost everything can be done and we certainly we we design our books so that it takes up kind of as little space as possible and we offer modifications for if you can't you know if you can't stretch your arms out all the way that's okay just you know bend one of them up a bit it doesn't really matter and the idea came out of back in the 80s like the trust is about the same age as me um which i <laughs> find quite pleasing so back in the mid 80s it came out of the idea it used to be called the prison ashram project it came out of the idea that monks and nuns live in a space called a cell as well and oh, they yeah, and that kind of like loss of freedom and pairing back down to only things that are absolutely considered necessary for survival that's what monks and nuns do mm. so there might be a kind of synergy between these two you know these two specifically things. she doesn't exactly do yoga with the prisoners she, she does a slightly different job than that but but she knows a lot about it and she also said that the martin the Salman episode was good too his work is fascinating such a cool job that's what her partner pete said the earlier episodes of your family and close friends have really beautiful moments of honesty and connection it must have been very hard to choose moments to include uh and it is and it has been and that is probably why we're running so long every episode has something engaging or entertaining about it and you have a great deal of good content to choose from thanks for making the show I've continued to really enjoy it. So that was quite a nice email to get randomly, someone I don't know. This is from George, who I think is conveniently gone to have a cigarette at this moment. So I'll read him, because he probably just told me to fuck off if I asked him to anyway. <laughs> I enjoyed a lot. The problem is the lack of celebs makes it hard to remember who was who. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's any use, I liked these ones for sure. Sadly, my favourites may be somewhere in anonymous land. Naveen, who you heard earlier on talking about taking a shower in music. All of Pete's ones, big up for you there, Dad. And he liked my mum's stuff about the events playground. So you were in charge of, a, of, of an adventure playground? Yeah. In the middle of a council estate? Well... Or by the side of a council estate? It was, whatever. yeah, there was kind of like a, a road in between, so it was sort of over there. But it, it, when you're talking about council estate, we're talking t tower blocks. Yeah. Proper 70s tower blocks. Yeah. Which were really high. Okay, what I understand of the playground is that they built the adventure playground themselves they have built the things that they hmm. played on basically it, it was a fenced off area quite a large area and i used to go and get loads and loads of wood loads of um nails and hammers and equipment and things like that <laughs> for the kids to build yeah, structures the teenagers and younger well yeah well, yeah 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 i mean basically i mean what began to happen they all made little huts and they're, they're dens really basically and then as as we got more experienced of it we 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 allocated this 
a space for the under fives and made play much more supervised in those areas. So when we actually had play schemes, we would have a a, a sort of fenced off area for the under fives with, with... with good supervision levels so that we could actually do them and the rest of the sort of toughies in, you know the, the, the six to about 12 year olds used to be making their dens and things like that and then over that age then we got we got to the sort of tough teenagers I remember a sort of little gang coming to me one day saying we've been nicked for stealing and taking away cars three Thursdays in a row. This Thursday we want to do something different. Have you got any suggestions? And I said, right, okay, why don't you build a treehouse? And so I turned a blind eye to where they were getting the equipment and they went <laughs> over the fence um, to the de- houses which were being demolished and got lo- lots of the joist wood and good structural stuff. <laughs> heaved it over and got loads and loads of equipment and during the winter times when we hadn't had much to do my helper and I had dug really deep holes and we'd actually got some telegraph holes and we put three around this dead tree they actually had the beginning of a tree house so it was a question of actually sort of building the, the house and the structure and everything around this this tree and uh, they built a 30-foot um, tree house. Wow. So, I mean, yeah. Well, there we go. I mean, that was hard to cut a bit from, because it's all good. You said you did one with, with a well-spoken writer type recently that was quite interesting in places, Katie Darby, maybe, that, and that was indeed her name. He said, Alex interviewing you was good. I liked his questions, i.e. random nonsense. <laughs> You might find some of them a bit weird. That's that's absolutely fine. I'm liking the fact that I don't know what's coming. It's really exciting. What would you say is the principal aspect of your personality? The principal aspect of my personality? Yeah. Yeah, my Fucking hell. Um, what? <laughs> Sorry if these are... No, 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 no. It's, it's good. It's good. Before you came down, I just looked on the internet for loads of questions. Because I couldn't think of any but I've, I've thought of a few of myself but I was just like I'll just find as many questions as I can so uh, this one came up the principal element of my personality what do, what do we mean do we mean the str- the strongest yeah like the one that comes across to most people the one that comes across to most people yeah like the one that I think it's that okay <laughs> I, th- I would imagine that the element of my personality that comes across the most to other people... And to yourself. Well, to other people it's probably intensity. It's not something I am happy about in some ways. It's not It's not how I would... If I was to design my personality from scratch, I probably would have turned down the intensity uh, a lot. I but th- it's something I've got. It's mm-hmm. something I am. And now I've got to the point where I kind of embrace who I am and my f- see my f- see my flaws as potential strengths as well and my strengths as potential weaknesses and try and be a bit more realistic about everything. I don't think it's a flaw at all. I mean, I think it's a really good defining aspect to have. Since I started teaching, 
I've noticed that most people, when they first describe me for whatever that reason, they say chilled out. Really? Yeah, which is interesting. But is that they, it's students that say that? Yeah, and teachers. Because I used to think it was melancholy. I used to think it was uh, something just, you know, like that. So I, 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 I envy your intensity, you might say. So don't don't think it's too, such a bad thing. Well, I quite. I mean, I know what they mean about chilled out. It's not how I would describe you, but then <laughs> I know you in a very different context. But I mean, I guess that element of you that is able to be a bit detached, I kind of envy because it's quite hard to never be able to detach yourself from a situation. I've gone for a, another bit later on to demonstrate the random nonsenseness of the conversation that he had with me <laughs> okay important question though yeah you have the choice to live with a gorilla who knows sign language yeah or a dog who can sing lullabies <laughs> which do you choose and why well gorilla and no sign language because if the dog's singing a lullaby and I don't want to hear that lullaby then I can't stop the dog from making that sound <laughs> and he can't communicate with me as a dog and he can't understand my... Assuming you could, uh, you know, just tell the dog to be quiet as like any other dog that you could reasonably control. Ah, well, they're like dogs. I like dogs and I don't know if uh, having a gorilla in my house would be a very uh, safe thing to be... I mean, I like gorillas. I'm not like, prejudiced against gorillas but they have, they have a place and it's not my house. <laughs> I don't understand sign language, so I couldn't communicate with the gorilla. I could, if I can communicate with the dog and tell the dog to shut up when it's annoying me, then that's okay. And dogs, you know, they give you un- unconditional love, and that's, that's always an engagingly egotistical thing to experience as a human being. Okay. What do you think is the most overrated human virtue? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah. What did you say to that? I think um, confidence. I think something like that. It was a hard one to answer. <laughs> and yeah, and then he he picked a few other people. Alex Jakeman bit about where he talks about his problems with having a, an interview with Sainsbury's the the gay guy that, who we heard earlier on talking about S&M and God and you said Sam who got locked in a room in Barbados was good which is slightly incorrect memory but that is cool here's Sam I think my mum allowed it at the time I think she thought it was just going to fizzle out into nothing but I, don't, I think she underestimated my persistence <laughs> Um, well, I think that most parents would do that. You know, it's yeah. a holiday romance. Yeah. It's going to fizzle out. She'll meet someone her own age. Yeah, yeah that's what she thought. Yeah. But she was very wrong. Didn't happen. Um, I think a year later, I, I wanted to go back and visit him. He wasn't working at the hotel that I met him at anymore. He'd lost his job. All these sob stories and stuff. Um, he actually started asking me for money around maybe four months in and I did send him money not not huge amounts over four years maybe 400 pounds altogether so it's not it's not a terrible like financial mistake but um yeah he did he did ask me for money 
and uh, when everyone ever, ever used to ask me, I used to tell them that he didn't, because I knew exactly what they'd say, and I knew it was true deep down. So you, do you think you always knew that he was taking you for a ride, but you lied to yourself, or do you, I mean... Um, I'm not sure. Still to this day, it's hard for me to admit that it was probably nothing for him the whole time. I don't think it, I don't think it will have been nothing. I don't. I mean, I think that he probably was attracted to you, but he the way he's behaving towards you that wasn't necessarily how you behave to someone that you love mm-hmm. in a well in a pure way. Like there are different kinds of love. Like mm-hmm. sometimes people do horrible things to people they love. So maybe he did love you. I don't know, but it wasn't very healthy. I yeah, think that's definitely. what I would say. I knew about this because you were working with me while this was going on. Uh-huh. So. A lot of why we are acquainted, I guess, is because yeah. I would talk to you about this yeah. stuff. Because I don't know, I feel quite protective towards you. Sam. <laughs> uh, I guess because you're, you're close to close to my sister's age, and you know, yeah, mm. that's really why. And you're a bit like my sister in some ways. We can hear the rain. The rain has started, but that's fine. But yeah, you might want to for your house yeah. house's sake. So. You're sending him money. Yeah. A year later, you saved up and went... Did you go to him? You went yeah. to, to stay um, with him? Yeah, it was another... I think it was a two-week visit again. But my mum insisted that she and her partner come with me, which is which was fair enough, because um, nobody wants their teenage daughter to be going off to a third-world country alone to meet a strange man. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, um, so we were all booked in to a hotel for two weeks. Obviously, my my mum paid for him, and she cried pretty much the whole time we were there. I think she sort of felt like she was paying for him to have sex with me, sort of because she was paying for the hotel room, and she knew inevitably what was going to happen. So I think from mum, look, looking back now that I'm a mum, like I hate that I did that to her. Um, but I was in love, so well, I thought I was in love. So have you have you said that to her? Yeah, we, we've talked about it because my me and my mum were really close, like like the closest you could ever imagine. And when he came along, it ruined it completely. We, we were arguing all the time, and it was horrible. Like, and it's some of the things that I said to my mum, like in that stage of my life, is really hard to think about because I love her so much yeah but I mean I I tell you what most of us have said some pretty horrible things Mm -hmm. to our parents at some point I mean I'm not saying that you shouldn't you know feel bad about it but I'm just saying you shouldn't like feel isolated by Mm. it do you know what I mean that's what I always think with these things people always feel like they've done a terrible thing and they're they're the worst person in the world but they're not we're all bad yeah That's um, a better way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that's one of the conversations that I refer to as feeling blessed to have had because it was really powerful to have. I mean, the first part of it is about her having a premature baby. The middle part of it is about this. It carries on and gets much worse and much better. And then the last part was about uh, domestic violence. So it was an intense conversation to have had. She picked those topics, so she... She clearly wanted to talk about them. And me and Sam knew each other, like, 
people who worked together. We'd never sat down and I was in her house and her, her baby was there crying in the next room, which added a real poignancy to a lot of the conversation, which is about the birth of her child, but then was also about this kind of intergenerational process of her mum and her and her child. So it was a really powerful experience to have. Really hard to pick a bit from. I was glad that you said the locked up in Barbados thing in your things. So I was like, all right, I'll pick from that bit, which I've never picked from before. So that was, that was interesting to do. The other person that George picked out is a person that lots of people picked out, which is Radcliffe Royds. My responsibility, I feel, in that is to, is, is, is to, is, is to carry my experience, as, as, you know, just to tell that experience to people so that should they feel they want to try and have a go, I'm very happy to tell them what I did and how I did it. Yeah. But I needed a lot of help and I needed a lot of other people's time and input. And a lot of that... You know, what's interesting though is, is an awful lot of that was, was just being rehumanized. And there are people that had a huge impact on my life that all they did was just acknowledge me. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to, to tell what uh, tell you the value of that when you've lived a life where ten thousand people have walked past and no one has Yeah, I mean I ha- I mean I, I can understand intellectually what you're saying, but I'm completely aware that I don't emotionally understand it one one little bit. I'm not sure if I emotionally understand it, but <laughs> I, I, I emotionally have experienced Yeah, I, I, I can't so imagine feeling like, that way, I guess. That's what and, I mean. and I have had the, the one of the most, you know, I mentioned earlier about the humiliation of going to jail for a leg of fucking lamb. <laughs> one of the most poignant things is my children's nanny. So I was with another friend, begging outside a tube station and I looked up and my children's nanny was there standing in front of me crying at me how can you live like this that was awful that was awful I could see the pity and the rejection and the sort of incomprehension and she'd seen me as, a, as this sort of, in my own world, and she'd... She'd seen She'd you. heard the slides, yeah. and I know he's in trouble. And then she encountered me as a homeless street beggar. Wow. Amazing, really. No, I mean, it's amazing, and amazing is the right word, I guess, but also it's the opposite of amazing. It's very mundane, in a way. Like, but yeah, there's nothing. Those are the sort of things that touch me, that moved me, that I can. You know, it's been really good this because I'm, I'm sort of remembering in, in in stillness. It's not a performance. I'm not trying to show off. I'm just mm. trying to share stuff that had a power for me and still does. When I, you know, I I was just remembering. It was a day very like this. The same sort of light quality, and she was slightly in shadow, and I, it took me a while to recognise her. And uh, it's such a tiny little story in, in the billions of people on this planet. That interaction of, of a woman whose job was to look after somebody's kids, seeing their father in this much reduced state. God, I hadn't remembered that in an age, Dave. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad to, glad to have been able to be part of you remembering it. I mean, yeah, and that was another blessed conversation. And I mean, and also, I mean, the thing about that was it was very poignant to have a conversation with someone who's been homeless in their home, in their, in their new home that they've built for themselves. This is from Chris. Do you want to read out your own yeah, words? <laughs> you start there. Um, you, you didn't say the bold bit. That's notes for me. Okay. I listened to Frank and Larrabee recently, sadly too recently to catch the show Larrabee plugged, and I wanted to make a comment on sound quality. With Frank, you had this pro-quality sound, and in quite a number of others, you've mentioned the quality of the sound, usually due to background noise. In Larrabee, it worked really well. Something about her story made it just right that you can identify the songs playing in the background. Larrabee was also a very important one for the issue of class, which features repeatedly. Okay, if I could stop you there, and I'll start you in a minute. Here's Larrabee on class. Because, you know, I went from the ghetto to, to Ivy League University, and really wow. it can only be that, because I'm not particularly brilliant, and I'm not particularly smart, <laughs> and I'm not a supermodel, and I don't have a trust fund, and, you know, I really didn't have people looking out for me, but I sort of had that to hold on to which was sort of writing and storytelling. It was like the one thing I knew I could do. Yeah. And so no matter how many times people told me I was stupid, I knew I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting, because that story, that kind of archetype, if you like, mm. if, you, if, you, if you're comfortable with looking at your life yeah. as an archetype, I mean, that's one of the things that people use to sort of justify, in a way, the American dream as an idea. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's a strange one, because... It happens. People get out of poverty, like you, you do, through inspirational things like storytelling. They do it everywhere, though, not just absolutely. in America. And, absolutely. And that, and, that, and that dream is that dream is sold to everybody. And yeah. I mean, I would definitely say that the UK is sold what you might call the American dream. But yeah. it's, it's, it's been our dream for a, a long time, so I think we can probably stop, you know, yeah. washing our hands of it. But but there's very much a class system in place, and yeah. there's a set of rules, social rules that one section of the world knows of Western society, you know, for example, and another section doesn't. I mean, there are certain people who grow up with parents who went to college and they hear the language of, like, managerial speak, the social structure is there within the home, and they grow up listening to Schubert and eating seared tuna. Yeah, exactly. And they have a social advantage when they're moving into different jobs yeah. in different parts of society and they have white skin yeah. often which, which is very convenient very easy and I was really yeah. I, I'm biracial but I look I appear to people yeah, yeah to pass I yeah. pass I blend whatever so that was definitely an advantage too that's also a disadvantage but that's a disadvantage in America and here you know it's almost global yeah I don't really believe that it's easy for people to jump class right no matter how talented they are. No, that's what I think you know, too. It's, it's really an exception. I mean, that's and that's exactly what I, what I think too. And I, I mean, I guess that's why I was kind of highlighting that, yeah. that area of it because I think so often when people hear about people with stories like you, that that kind of justifies their their, their position of anyone can make yeah, it. Yeah, and just it's have not to try true. Hard. It's and not. It's it not is true. Luck it was as much near, as, It was it was a Herculean attempt that I had to make yeah. for normalcy. Yeah. And most people don't even have the stability to attempt that Herculean move. 
towards basic normalcy. Yeah, yeah, Most sure. people who grow up in care, they don't have the skills. So I think that's something that, you know, working with youth offenders, it's very helpful. It helps them develop some of the skills. Let's have a look at my notes. So, yeah, I mean, the class, religion, death, birth, work, gender and sexuality, creativity, communication and politics seem to me to be the themes that have come through the show the most, probably. And Sam is arriving as we speak. Do you want to just carry it, finish Hi. off your... Hello, Sam. Uh, I wish I'd been taking notes now. Carl James was, as you know, a great interview and fascinating from the meta-conversation point of view. And I think you and I talked a bit about conversation from a less professional standpoint. I loved hearing Jack talk about his work. Okay, here's Jack talking about his work. Have there been any strange scenarios that have come up in your time as a housing officer? I imagine you see quite a lot of the world. You see a fair amount of stuff. So far, I'm on one shotgun, three dead bodies, and a lot of drugs uh, so <laughs> in people's houses. Fuck. So a shotgun, what, at your face? or No, no, no. The shotgun was in the cupboard. Um, I was round at the house of someone. Uh, basically, neighbours had called in, and oh, this girl, she's 14, 15, causing a lot of problems in the area drinking with her mates in the stairwells and all this and this and this so found out who her mum was went round to say her mum said you need to rein your daughter in and when I got in the house there were these two little girls who were uh, uh, wouldn't be one was four one was six something like this and one of them had a really gammy eye and the other was sort of just walking around like this kind of thing and I was like oh you're right girls and the mum was going oh yeah it's not this girl's fault it's the fault of the estate and it's horrible around here and right, right, which you hear everywhere you go and by and large estates are horrible so you sort of give a little bit of leeway for that but not too much because it's in part, it's her daughter making this day horrible. So, so your your assessment is that it's reasonable to say that there's some responsibility of the estates being horrible, but that there is also personal responsibility. Well, I mean, there's responsibility on parents to not let their kids make estates horrible. Yeah. There's responsibility on all people who well, anywhere you live, not even the estates you live in the street, don't you know, don't fucking chuck KFC boxes in the street. It's disgusting. It's horrible, and it makes it unpleasant for everyone who lives there. Yeah, fair so enough. So, is it about a basic sort of level of tolerance and respect? I do appreciate the fact that when you've grown up for I don't know, 15, 20 years in an area that is exactly like that it doesn't make it easy to go oh it shouldn't be like this it's just the way things are so like I said a little bit of leeway for it but not too much cause, completely yeah, yeah, yeah. your fault so yeah the, and the girls go yeah it's nasty man here and then this little four year old girl goes and there's a gun in the cupboard and I was like <laughs> fuck <laughs> is there a gun in your cupboard am I going to get shot am I going to get out of there kind of thing um, I looked at the mum and she goes oh the 15 year old twatty girl that I come to talk about I was like oh you've said too much now grass and all this kind of thing I was like oh, fuck's sake. what cupboard what kind of gun where is it and how do you know about it so it basically transpired that the, uh, the cupboard in question was in the sort of communal was underneath the stairs and it was where the caretaker kept a lot of his you know, bits and pieces but a lot of residents had a key for it as well they keep their prams or whatever else Jesus. inside there so I was like well okay that's cool Mum, do you want to come and show me where this cupboard is? And then I had to get the caretaker around, opened it up, looked inside, and inside there was the usual sort of household shit, bits and pieces. And then at the back there was this uh, sort of long, weedy suitcase for um, a shopping trolley kind of thing. And there was a sort of hold kind of bag. So I thought, all right, let me have a look in the hold Open it, it was really dark and you couldn't really see very much. So I <laughs> sort of reached around kind of gingerly inside. I felt this big metal thing and I was like, oh, well, what the fuck is this? So I sort of picked it out with two fingers. Uh, what is this? And I pulled it out and it was like these two sort of tubes stuck together. And I worked out it's the sawn off barrel of a shotgun. And I was like, fuck, let me now call the police and get them to come and yeah, do yeah, all this yeah. kind of shit. So they wound up and I was like you need to kind of hurry because I'm not standing at a couple with a gun outside a couple with a gun inside it for too long because whoever has the gun might come back and 
want to get me. So they rolled up about an hour and a quarter later, and there's me shitting myself with the caretakers pacing up and down outside this cupboard. Uh, keeping half an eye on that and half an eye on the street to see if anyone turned up in a kind of car with uh, rough-looking people. So <laughs> Nicely done. So, <laughs> so the police sort of turned up and they empty it out and all this kind of shit. So there's basically in the cupboard there's a shotgun, which is kind of, well, two foot, two and a bit foot long, big old fucking shotgun to me. A whole uh, Sainsbury bag full of shotgun uh, rounds. There's another bag with stuff like bullets for a handgun and this kind of stuff but the handgun wasn't there the handgun was out on the street so yeah the police carted it all off I pretended to oversee them doing their thing basically I sat in the courtyard of the block of flats wasting the day having a cigarette and reading the paper kind of thing so I didn't want to go back to the office I wasn't feeling much like doing any more work that day I thought my, my job is done you a bit of a shock really yeah another gun off the street I thought another life safe blah 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 literally that night just up the hill from my house between my house and the estate a kid got shot with a shotgun and I was like fuck no matter what you do it it kind of put me in a bit of a down heart around the world because I thought oh yeah it's great got a gun off the street you know that's potentially life saved and then literally the very same day someone got killed with exactly the same kind of gun so it's like no matter what you take there's always always something there yeah so it's a bit dispiriting but it was you know it was an interesting day (laughs) we started off with the guns there's after that three dead bodies which is really really intense so I decided to just have the gun (laughs) because there's enough intensity happened already tonight hello Natty Um, Jen do you think we need what we need to do is play the songs now and then finish off afterwards I think so yeah okay so should we have a break while the band sets up yeah yeah there you go Hello, Dean Hagelin. Hi, Phil Ernest. You know, we co-host a weekly podcast, yeah. Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Mm-hmm. I you, knew that. You were aware of that. Yeah, because I'm here. When you're I do often that. here when you do it. Sometimes. That's true, and let's put an end to the rumor that you're not. Yes, right now. stop that. We also made a, a feature-length documentary together called The Truth Is Out There. I remember that. An epic. Of <laughs> it was an epic. Comedy, consciousness, and conspiracy. All three. And it was at one of the screenings of The Truth Is Out There Mm -hmm. in the UK Mm -hmm. where I met uh, a really cool young man named David Pickering. Uh Uh-huh. Who hosts a podcast of his own. What? Called Getting Better Acquainted. Oh, fantastic. And as I understand it, he's about to be celebrating his 100th episode. Wow. Wow. Well, I remember our 100th episode. Do you? <laughs> no, I, I actually do. Oh, you do? I do. What do we do? Uh, I don't think that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's, let's spend the whole time on getting better acquainted 100 by talking about our 100th episode. <laughs> when I was a guest on his show, yes. we recorded it in the smallest hotel room uh, in all of London, this near is... in the shadow of Victoria Station, <laughs> just cramped together. What better way to get, get better acquainted? Than a very awkward situation like that. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. good. I think one of us was on the bed, the other one was sitting on the floor. It's creepier. It gets creepier and creepier. (laughs) Much like how we record this show. Yeah, totally. Uh, But I love the name of the show, and I I think about this from time to time as, uh, you know, we watch the media and we see so many people... Uh, often ranting their opinion Mm -hmm. uh, about some topic or some group of people or other people that almost seems to be fueled entirely by paranoia. Right. It just occurs to me that if we could use our fear, if we could use our paranoia to uh, inspire us to maybe get to know 
the people that we are afraid of or those groups that we uh, believe are our enemies. Right. If we could use that fear and that paranoia as an inspiration to try to get to know them better, uh, the, the, the worst thing that happens is that we become better educated. Right. Uh, we have uh, a life experience. Right. And you may not fear what you do not know. We, uh, we might just find that so many of the seemingly insoluble problems are not actually that big of a deal. Look at that. Uh, we may not, of course, in the process of getting to know someone, uh, actually find qualities and, and uh, you know of character that we admire. We right. might not. You might not. Uh, but at the very least, we will be getting better acquainted. Like it. Yeah. And so uh, I salute David Pickering on this 100th episode for uh, inspiring those thoughts and for inspiring all of us to do just that. May a hundred more come as quickly. (laughs) So the, the concept behind this is it's going to be a strand in the show where we go around to different people's rooms and play, it's got a room full of friends. So we're going to play two songs that are kind of getting better acquainted related. And then after that, we'll either play the last four clips or we won't. <laughs> and I think we'll have an audience decision on that one. I like to be interactive. Right. Sounding good, George? Yeah, we're doing Spiral first. We haven't got the lyrics. Yeah, no worries. Are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah. Sounds good, right? <laughs> Do you want those? Oh, I'm fine. Okay, we can have I think it's recording. Uh, can you check for me just in case? Because I've got to a point in the night where I'm a bit drunk. Okay. So this first song is called The Spiral. It's about my relationship with my mother, which is appropriate to a lot of the clips we've been listening to tonight. And it's also a little bit about things that me and my brother were talking about, about rage and stuff, right? Yeah, ready? One, two, three, one, two, three. Four. A place that you weren't expecting. A sudden change and then it comes down. But you let it come down. Like a bulldog clamped onto your flesh. It just won't let you go and it pulls you down. But you let it pull you down.
you back then. <laughs> <laughs> I told you back then. You were never practiced, yeah, George. Yeah, we remember that practice where I had to go you, all the way to Ballard. But you got the memo, yeah, George. I also remember today, so yes. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so yeah, that's. Uh, I've been taking notes on the ending, trying to make it a little bit shorter. Um, but that's nice. the that's the thing. Yeah, that's yeah, the. Yeah. 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 What's the first one? <laughs> What's the first chord? Yeah. Uh, G. G. All right, so this is a song I wrote for a different project of the Reactionaries, where we were doing a, a, an album called Bouncy Poppy Songs About Death, which will be around I don't know by the end of the year or something. It's one of the first like it. It's like I had to write it about my relationship with my father and death. So it's always a jolly one to play when he's here. Um, and uh, other Getting Better Acquainted related facts, the clip that we heard from Writing Groove earlier on, on that writing retreat, I wrote the song and played it to the whole of Writing Group where they gave me writing group-like notes. Because uh, I've never done a song where I've like had writing group kind of notes about like what to cut and stuff from the lyrics, but it was really handy. And now it's a hell of a lot shorter than it used to be. It used to be longer. It used to be fuckloads longer, but it is... Yeah, man. You, 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 they had to deal with that. And then, uh, it, was, it was thanks to them that I pretty much did this. And it was kind of the, the song that was featured in a an episode that Jen picked out as one of her ones that she likes called To The Heart Of It, which I didn't mention yet because I maybe never will. But uh, Jen, picked, <laughs> Jen picked it out as one that she liked, which is a, an episode where it was like a documentary style where I talked to lots of different members of my family about my dad's heart bypass and his heart attack, including dad, who ends the show by referring to it as like his war. Because when he was in the war, he never got to... Get to, got to have risk and danger, and uh, when he had his heart bypass, he, he got to you know, have that experience. But this has got nothing to do with that. This is to do with my relationship with my dad's death, and it, it focuses on other moments in my childhood that are unheart attack related. On that note.
Actually, no one cares about your father's heart attack. <laughs> Sorry, the, the, the real power <laughs> turns out the, the, the important <laughs> bit's the Lord of the Rings. Who knew? They weren't meaning in, in real life, they just meant in the context of the song. But yeah. It's so always, it, was, it was good to hear, because I, I think we heard it about 8 million times. Oh God, when I was writing it. Really? Writing it. Oh, wow. And it was, it was very catchy tunes, so it was like, da da Good, well I'm glad. So yeah, so we have a choice now. Do we listen to the four last clips or do we call it a day? Now? I think we're hardcore enough to listen hardcore to Hardcore enough to listen to the four last clips, okay. Well done. Thank you, Irene, for the free. Thank you. The pregnant woman has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone got lower threshold? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like, Can we go so hardcore that I'm not even worrying about headphones anymore? Yeah, that's the song. It's the nursery rhyme. Okay, so Chris also said, he sent me another email after that, which we said, uh, okay, 
We said <laughs> also Russell was also Russell was magnificent. Uh, was that inflection? Or no, or? it wasn't even right because he's not that he's not that kind of London. Also Russell was magnificent. Occasionally one meets or hears someone who is just dreamy. So not just me that has crushes on me. And Russell was a bit dreamy for me. So I thought I would do a little clip from Russell because the guy I mentioned earlier on, Richard, one of the three posh boys, I couldn't find a clip that I was happy with because I like his conversation. Um, But it's so hard to pick a bit. But I could pick this bit, which is me and Russell talking about Richard. You said that Richard saved your life. What do you mean, well, I, I was I was at art school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I went to art school thinking, oh yeah, this would be really good. You know, this is going to be lots of interesting people, really uh, like you know a big like melting pot of ideas, and it's going to be a really excellent opportunity. And I just felt the people there were just really really lazy, and they'd come in, they'd sign in at eleven go down the pub, come back, sign in at two, and then fuck off. And they wouldn't do any work. And I always remember we had this big, like, assessment-y thing where we all had to produce this bit of work and talk about it. And this girl literally got two wire coat hangers and, like, bent them in half and, like, intertwined them. And she came up with this absolute garbage spiel about, like, yes, it's... This is showing the decay of of society as we move into the twen- in the twenty first century, and and all of the tutors and lecturers were just like stroking their chins, going, "Yeah, it's a very strong piece." <laughs> this is actually taking the piss, and like the ten percent of people that got there at nine and worked really hard to actually kind of push themselves artistically, experiment with new media, and build up a good oeuvre. That's a good word. Of, of work, you know, got no recognition at all. We went on a trip to Barcelona, and I was like, bloody hell, like a big art trip. And I was like, all oh, these people are wankers. And I was really ill to boot, and me and Richard were like, I guess, the two weirdos with no mates. So they stuck us in a room together, and it was like, yeah, finally, it's someone else who doesn't really like all this stuff. So we just kind of put our heads together and tried to derail lots of art college, and we came up with this art movement called improvementism. Uh, yes, you told me about this first time we met. Yeah. It was, I thought it was amazing. <laughs> what, what was improvementism? The concept of improvementism was kind of, it was intended to just kind of mainly ruffle feathers and try to knock art off his pedestal a little bit. And the idea was that art isn't something that's all like, oh, it's incredible, but it is just intrinsically a piece of canvas covered in paint or a block of clay that's hardened or something like that. And if you purchase that, it's your ownership and you can do with it what you want. So if you decide to improve it like you would a house or a car that you've bought, which you're doing up or something like that, then you should be able to do the same with art. So we went round and bought pieces of people's art that we thought we could maybe make better at art college and we did like a big talk about it and things like that and it was quite good we tried to like get famous artists to give us work that we could improve for them and things like that Richard always I think in in the kind of work I've seen him do when he's been making art he always likes to pop bubbles and it sounds like improvementism was was one of those kind of things where it's popping this big bubble of self-belief I remember I was with Richard at university, because that's where I know him from. And 
we were walking past some people doing like a student loans protest and like shouting on the megaphone. Richard was like, can I have the mic? And then he was like, he got the mic and he's like, I want more money because my daddy and mummy are paying for me already. And he totally like satirised their entire cause. But people didn't 100% understand that it was satire. Some people were cheering and it was quite a good moment. I kind of enjoyed that. Then I, and then he gave me the microphone and I was like, you shouldn't just be standing around, you should do something. The next thing I knew, we were on the top of the, the building. We went and did a sit-in in the Chancellor's <laughs> hallway, and then we were on the top of the building, and then someone was passing me a mobile phone, and I was doing a, a, an interview with a local radio station, and I just we'd just been walking along, and we really were just... We only got involved because it was a laugh. Like, we, we were completely and utterly... Like, I'm not saying I disagreed with their cause, mm. but I was... You know, we weren't, we weren't in on it. I think the thing about Richard, yeah. for people that don't know him, he's a very calm and very gentle and pleasant character. Yeah. And I think that that is very... Not, not misleading, but it lulls you into a false yes. sense that things aren't... You know, that you think, oh, I'm going to go and it's just going to be a really nice, calm... Yeah cultured evening because this is Richard and he's he looks a little bit he, he, he dresses like a 1940s gentleman he, he looks a little bit like Prince Harry and Prince William combined in yeah, one person that's very good description but I, the amount of kind of weird messes I've got myself in with him yeah me too I, and oh god it's like and you guys did a a live art piece which I saw which I thought was fantastic and it was in like a hardcore gay club or something yeah, wasn't it and it's like that was it just incredible I, I remember yeah, it was a really, really, really hardcore gay club. Yeah. Like, there wasn't men and women's toilets. There was just one giant toilet room. And the toilet doors were such that they were saloon doors on each cubicle that stopped just above the toilet. <laughs> so whoever had to use the toilet, you could either see their bum or you would see their entire body if they were sitting on the toilet, except for their heads. <laughs> and... Oh, I remember th- oh, there was okay. a girl I was with who was like, oh, I'm really scared of going to the toilet. So I was like, it's fine. There's men in there, but it's just like a normal toilet. And I walked in and there was a guy <laughs> cleaning semen out of his bum into the sink. Oh, and I was thinking, wow. this is a very, very hardcore no, I, <laughs> I mean, I went there on my own and you guys weren't there. So I was just like <laughs> sitting around, like walking around, <laughs> looking at some like hardcore gay pornography art, inverted commas. It was like videos of people cutting themselves oh, yeah. and all sorts oh, of fucking like that, shit yeah. like that. And I was just I was thinking, hmm, I wonder when they're going to get here and I wonder <laughs> what the hell is going to happen tonight. But when when the show happened, it was a real breath of fresh air, I thought, because it kind of sent up the, uh, the whole place in a way. You guys kind of came out in these balaclavas doing this with this crazy old-time music and you smashed up a chicken... <laughs> And the marbles came out of it. That was like magic. I properly wasn't expecting like beautiful things to come out of a dead chicken carcass. I did really like it. I was, I, was, I remember when we first did that, and Richard was like, "We need. I need to find some roadkill." And he drove, <laughs> and he drove around. Like where he lived, oh, this was, he drove around Wokingham for like two hours trying to find roadkill, and we couldn't. He then went to butchers and tried to get a whole chicken, like with all the bits still on. And we couldn't do that, so we just had to buy like a, a Tesco's chicken. And most people would just be like, oh, "I'd like it with the giblets or without." But he actually filled it full of marbles and eggs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And feathers. Yeah, yeah. The things that we get into with Richard. Some extra correspondence that I missed out either because I hadn't received it yet or because I got too drunk. This is from Frank. 
who has appeared on the show. He said, Hi Dave, hope it's not too late to send you this. My favourite episodes are the ones that feature extraordinary, ordinary people. Jessica, Angela, Sané, Abby, Joe, to name only a few. I also like the ones where people talk about love, dating and relationships. Lucy, brackets 42, JP and Ella, Emily. Some of my absolute favourites are Lucy, number 69, because you spoke a lot about topics that are close to my heart. Louise, number 78, because I found your discussion about following and leading very insightful. And last but not least, Lucy, 73. Such an impressive career and such a great history of how the library service has developed in the last 30 years. Sorry I'm not good at... Sorry, I'm not good at remembering favourite moments. GBA is not my first listening choice when I'm trying to relax after work or when I'm in the mood for some light entertainment. But when I have some time on my hands to really listen and I want to learn about the experiences of people I would almost certainly never have met, then I will turn on GBA. About my own episode. I will just say that if I had to do it again, I would tell you more about my personal life. I find that the episodes where people reveal things that are quite personal are often the most interesting and I regret that I wasn't in the right mental place to talk about those things when we recorded the episode. Looking forward to GBA 100. Frank. And then I've got two tweets, both from different people called Chris. One was from Chris Roberts, who is my old lecturer, who has been on the show and whose episode is really worth a listen. He said, keep it up, Dave. I'm pleased to say that I have listened to almost all of them, approximately 90 so far. Hashtag loving GBA. This one is from another Chris who's been on the show, Chris Good, very belatedly just caught up with at GBA podcast number 87. And it's got the link on conversational podcasting. Massively insightful and interesting. Then also, then a few days later, Chris sent me another another email saying, Peter talking about his days riding in the cattle truck with the French squaddies is a lovely vignette of how pleasant life can be, even in the wartime. And here it is. I travelled with this group of guys from the premier commander Francais, which was the first French commander, who they, they'd been attached to, to what to duty or whatever. And they were all French, and I spoke a bit of French then, because they had learnt a bit at school and I used it in Algiers, and I was sort of... And I came back with these guys and we travelled in the cattle trucks, open cattle trucks, the kind of hell ships that went to base with Belson, but just a few of us in one. I mean, this wasn't. This was just because that was. The, these were the things on the train. I mean, I mean, great. Six of us. Lots of French wine, which they got on board. We got thoroughly pissed. They taught me the Chateau and I had to teach What's them. That? That's a song. Okay, it's a song. Oh, the um, Edith Piaf. Edith Piaf. Yeah. And I, in return, I had to teach them 
say about the White Kiss of Drover, you know, there'll always be a... The war is over, the White Cliffs of Dover, tomorrow, just you wait and see. That's yeah, to teach Vera Lynn, French, isn't it? Vera Lynn. Yeah. Yeah. And these French commanders, they were all about my age, you know. We were, we, I mean, we were just drinking wine, lying in these open cattle trucks, and the doors open, and the sun shining out, and the Guelman Mountains behind, and we had about five days, you know. We could have been out in the army. I mean, there was no discipline, there was nobody in charge of us, we'd just be... That was great, that was really great. Anyway, then I got back to Algiers and I had to wait in the camp because the regiment I was with had by then moved to Italy. Recorded in uh, Stansted Airport, <laughs> yeah, pub in, in the weather spoons of Stansted Airport. Near to the toy shop. Yeah, not right yeah, by the toy shop. You can hear the toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, man. That fucking oh, bird. Just did my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just this bird that's like goes. Yeah. It's and it sounds very exotic with this Algerian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 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 So this is an email from a guy called Al uh, Alistair, who is the uh, guy that programs stuff at, at the Hackney Attic who's recently been on a show. He said, Congratulations, Dave. Milestone. My favourite episodes are Hayley Superbard, Lucy Ayrton and you, Coventry, all because I have a link, to, a personal link to them. I've enjoyed others, but those are the ones that stick in my leaky mind. The Coventry one is a great mix of conversation, recollection and unsentimental tour guide with very little nostalgia, which is refreshing. And it's great hearing you connect with an old friend in a very different seeming way from the other conversations. Also, you appear to change and mellow through the episode. <laughs> what happens when you spend what? a day with me, yeah? <laughs> yeah. and uh, seem to make peace with the place through the conversation. I also enjoyed your di- division, or diversion, I'm not sure what that's meant to mean, of the Sony Awards with the two other podcasters, and ironically for the show that's not focusing on celebrities, I enjoyed uh, the chat about Chris Evans. So, here's that bit. The thing is about that Sony Awards, it cost £110 to go. No, it cost was £200 it, no, pounds to go. That's right, it was end to enter, it was £110 yeah. or something. It was a weird experience for me as somebody who works for not very much money for the council to be in Grosvenor House, mm. have a very big disappointment, see lots of celebrities, like discover that well no I'm not going to say that Oh. well I don't want to tie you with. I'm, I'm quite happy to say that I think Chris Evans is a cock but I don't that. necessarily think that you guys would well, necessarily we don't have to you know yeah, we can so have our own separate you opinions can, you can I've say, never met him well, apart from I found, him, I found him to be a cock um, did you meet him? I, did you meet him in the toilet? my friend was waiting to speak to him mm. and he was very rude to my friend and my friend really wanted to speak in to him in what manner? what did he say? I can't I can't I can't finish the story oh. because I would reveal my friend's identity. Well, this reflects badly okay. on you, Dave. Right. I, 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 okay. He said, I'm not going to talk to a black woman with one leg. Okay, so say, <laughs> so, say, so say it was Helen waiting to speak to okay. Yes, imagine Helen's Oh my God, I can't wait. Um, I really want to speak yeah. to Chris Evans. I really, really do. Yeah, yeah. am I reenacting and it properly? You, and yeah, and you say to him, hello, my name's Helen. Mm-hmm. He turned to the person and said, hello, little Helen. And then turned away. Right. And turned his back completely on that person. Well, that is rude, yeah. Especially that if Helen is six rude. feet tall. 
Well, yeah. I mean, exactly. I chose you because you're the taller of the two of you, and I thought it would be a good idea. I should say, my, my only personal interaction with Chris Evans ever, apart from when I actually went on stage receiving wood, but I count that as a professional interaction. My only actual <laughs> personal interaction with him was um, when I was, I think, nine years old. My dad's a vintage Bentley restorer and racer. Strange job, but that is what he is. Um, and he was running an event where he was doing a speed record. He was trying to break the 1,000-mile speed record in a pre-1930s car. You didn't think we'd be talking about this, did you? And uh, Chris Evans is a car nut and, and came. And uh, he was in the marquee, sort of enjoying the hospitality of the marquee. And I was filming it on my camcorder. And, of course, I thought I was being subtle, but, you know being sort of seven or eight years old yeah. wasn't being very subtle with a camcorder in those days that was like the size of me on my shoulder <laughs> yeah. um, trying to get as many pickup shots of the celebrity Chris Evans as possible because he was you know this was when he was peak don't forget your toothbrush oh, big, radio one breakfast yeah, show big yeah. breakfast home and, uh, and actually and uh, uh, you know this doesn't say that he's not a cock but he certainly wasn't a cock with a child well, uh, he came nice up thing. to me as this whatever I was seven or eight year old and said, you know what, if you really want to get a picture of me, the way to do it is fuck off outside. He didn't say that. The way to do it, <laughs> the way to do it take the camera off your shoulder and hold it like this. And he showed me to hold the camera at waist height. Wow. Which for and a child is about a foot off the ground. Yeah, yeah. But he said, that's how they do it in the TV studio. They hold it like this under their arm and then point it and I'll go and sit over there and you can point it at me now. Uh, which, you know, was I remember that so that lasted with me, so yeah. Well that's nice. There I mean, redeeming I mean, features well, and, that, and that's true. I mean I'm I'm sure that Chris Evans is a person like any other person. He Charitably can be a cop sometimes children and, get and cut sometimes he can be other. nice, you know, I'm sure he's sometimes nice. I was just annoyed because he was mean to my friend. Yeah, no, and, that's reasonable. And you know, I wasn't expecting it and it, I guess it was a, a night when we'd all well, yeah, it w- was naive But it was nice to the bishop and the bird. You love them. Indeed. The winners winners. Yeah, winners get the good treatment. He went on to say I love the plug-in bit of the show because as well as showing people in a very personal and authentic way, you show us that they have passions and interests beyond the topics covered and often demonstrate how much creativity there is going on out there. Also, the whole concept is brilliant and always worth a listen. On the negative side, I'm always put off by your focus on university experience, especially as it relates to Oxbridge. It usually throws up something interesting, but it sometimes makes interviewees defensive and they don't often engage in it as much as you do on the top as a topic. I feel that it might be better if you got a cross section of interviewees and did a did a university special to focus your ideas on it a bit more in a bit more of a constructive way. Fair point. You can learn loads of stuff about yourselves and your attitude through planned conversations. Maybe it's something that we should all do with our friends generally. Do you want to read out your one, Jim? Oh God, I don't know. I don't remember what it was. Go on, Jim. Starts on that page. Yeah. So my two very favourite episodes apparently were to the heart of it because I like the different points of view. I like both of these conversations, but especially the second one. Radcliffe, which I say in my list, I can't remember which part, but it's Sam and Owen. And then I put, I, I think it feels wrong to pick favourites when a lot of these are people I know, and it's also a bit tricky because I automatically want to be friends. Yeah. <laughs> then I've got a, a GBA favourite moments heading. Which I've written, I'm afraid I can't do this without listening back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I skip the stuff that isn't necessarily readable. Well, I don't know what it's going to say. Well, I don't know what it's going to say either because I haven't got it in my hands anymore. <laughs> I, I feel like you should have it. All right. <laughs> yeah. So she said, it's fascinating hearing other people's stories. I thought I might be bored by listening to people I don't already know, but this isn't the case at all. See, this is quite good. So you should be reading this what? bit. Reveals <laughs> simultaneously likes eavesdropping and being involved in a conversation. It's a great oral history project. It would be... See, it's weird me reading this stuff. It would, it would be interesting to do a 10 years on kind of thing with some guests. That's assuming I haven't finished. 
Oh, they're still going in ten years, I reckon. Not only nice. to catch up with them, but to see whether they'd still agree with the things that they said then. It's interesting following the host's journey and piecing... I like the fact that you're thinking of me as the host. Uh, the host's journey and piecing you together as a character through all the different conversations. Uh, it's, refresh- <laughs> it's, it's refreshingly honest. She said about recording her own episode, I was surprised that despite... Make Jen read that, make Jen read that. <laughs> Where is it? Oh... I was surprised that despite being aware of the microphone, I stopped minding it as much as the recording went on. Like the cat that stays on your knee but retracts its claws. Yeah. (laughs) I was surprised by how quickly the time passed. I was surprised by how easy it was to fill an hour. Listening back, I was pleasantly surprised to find I didn't sound as ignorant or as dull as I feel. I never liked hearing my own voice, but for some reason I didn't mind this. Perhaps I did at first, but then as the episode went on, I got over it. It didn't sound as like or as nasal as I usually think it does. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed talking about myself. This sits uneasily with me now. It's generally not something I enjoy doing, and I feel slightly ashamed of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. That's uh, a guest's experience. So here's some more correspondence. I'm just writing to let you know that I've discovered your podcast, and I'm really enjoying it. I like your take on speech radio as opposed to formal interview, as listening to people talking and sharing stories is something which radio does so well, but the big stations are afraid to do without such a solid structure or purpose, which is meant as a compliment. My interest stems from being a big radio fan and reaching my final year of studying radio production at the University of Westminster. I'm hoping to kickstart a career in feature radio and listening projects, so I was wondering what else you're involved in. I understand ah! you're doing a talk at the Invisible Picture Palace. How, uh, well, she says house, but it was the Invisible Picture Palace in November. Thanks, sorry if this is a bit unusual, Bryony. And I said, you sound great. Do you want to do my sound? And she um, is great. And she is great. She did a really good job with the first episode of the Stand Up Tragedy Hackney podcast. A little cross-promotion there. This is from somebody also I didn't know before this. Hello, Dave. I guess it's weird to call you Dave as you don't know me. But I listen to your podcast, and that's what you always call yourself on there. So that's how I think of you. <laughs> I, I like you're getting better acquainted a lot, by the way. It's a good project. But yeah, I wouldn't write in to just say that. I write in because I follow you and at Mortari on Twitter. And, well, there's no socially acceptable way of, of putting this. I watched your conversation about International Men's Day unfurl this afternoon. I thought it was really interesting and I watched because you're both people I know in that way that you feel you know people who put stuff out on the internet, both people whose opinions I respect. It looks like you ended up agreeing about the International Men's Day thing, but it did get quite hostile and I suppose I felt a bit sorry for you when she and that other person were putting you down. You're right, they were quite rude. That doesn't make them wrong in their opinions, it's just, ah, that's why I wanted to write to you to sort of offer a perspective on it that hopefully doesn't reflect too badly on anyone. When you, and this is such a nice email, I was really pleased to get this. When you set your stall out as a feminist with a capital F, a bullshit outspoken lefty female feminist, you get a lot of abuse. That's not to say it's a bad idea, I do it too. But there are occupational hazards that you have to learn to cope with. You get a lot of teasing and prodding from misogynists and what we call well-meaning knobs. (laughs) which don't really want to engage in proper conversation and just want to antagonise you in real life, but also loads online, especially on Twitter. And at the beginning, you try to engage politely with everyone, but it gets to a point where you're just tired and you just want to tell people to fuck off indiscriminately. You develop a roughness. 
I'm 20 years old and I'm already getting tired of having to explain and justify my views. So God knows what it's like for women who've been going for longer than me. You sort of develop this angry, snappy persona for when you feel under attack. Problem is, on Twitter, it's hard to discriminate between well-meaning knobs and actual allies who just want to have reasonable conversation. I don't know where I stand on male feminists at the moment, but whether you call yourself one or not... I'd say, having ended up hearing you talk quite a lot through getting better acquainted, you were to be counted on our side, which is always nice, isn't it? So <laughs> it, it really, it wasn't really fair that you ended up on the receiving end of a defence mechanism de- developed with misogynists and knobs in mind. So yeah, please don't let this put you off. Becoming jaded is something that happens. Oh, she's so nice. Uh, <laughs> we don't want it to, and we try not to, but even champions get sick. If you have a long email that, I do apologise. All the best. And it's really nice. Um, we had a very extended conversation about the meaning of feminism after this. But uh, the reason I included that partly is because one of the things that Getting Better Acquainted has, has given me is I admit that I'm a feminist now and I, I accept that men can be feminists. After a number of conversations, some with people in this room, I've come to that conclusion. This was a bit of feedback that somebody gave me who didn't like the show too much, but you'll see. Dave, got a couple of bits of feedback. <laughs> I've given GBA a go after hearing the answer to me this episode, but I'm not sure it's my thing, to be honest. Two main reasons which you might, or not, be interested in. The file sizes. Just updated my podcast feed, and the latest episode is nearly 200 megabytes. That's a huge amount for an hour's worth of speech. This brings me perversely onto the next issue. Sound quality. You can't expect people to listen to interviews in busy places. I tried to, to intro GBA to my wife in the car, but after five, about five minutes, she, just, she said she just couldn't bear the background noise anymore. After a few episodes now, I have to say I agree. It certainly seems at odds that the massive file size, which you'd assume comes from someone who really cares about sound, yeah. the sound quality... <laughs> agree, uh, yeah. agree. Well, <laughs> smaller sound files now, I have learned. I didn't understand sound files. This man helped me. Record them better. No, it's the, it's the size that I put them at. Sound sound quality, that's a different issue. Sound files. Not the sound quality. Well, well, you want better sound quality. I can't help you with that. We have had this discussion. Often it appears to be the opposite. Yeah, you should have been there earlier. I wish you luck and honest. I wish you luck and hope that you take my comments in the spirit which they were meant to be given. Constructive. I'm also in a rush to get the dinner on. <laughs> I live in Wanstead, by the way. So I was particularly interested to hear the episode I heard today that says you're in Leytonstone. Now I'm thinking you might come after me. So I'm not going to come after him. Getting better acquainted made something you said's top gigs of 2012, which was pretty cool. It was a review of the live recording of Getting Better Acquainted in the Invisible Picture Palace. Sadly, not our inaugural performance, Sam. It was the one that I did with Yuri. The, The reviewer said. The creators of In the Dark were the loveliest radio geeks I've ever had the pleasure to meet and sitting on big cushions in a tiny greenhouse listening to interesting people talk about interesting things is the best concept for an event probably ever. The night I went, Dave interviewed Euphori, Yuri, Yuri and the whole thing was intimate and honest. The interview will be podcast in 2013. It's going to be podcast in the week before this. Here's some tweets about the show, mostly about the Christmas special, which is the last clip I think I'll play, because I can't bother to play the one after that. So Martin Oswick, who's been on the show, Martin the Soundman, said, not something to listen to with your gran, but I just heard the Xmas GBA podcast with, with Helen Zoltzman. That's Helen who you heard earlier on, uh, and it's very good. 
And Helen said, one of the best shows I've heard this year, the Xmas episode of GBA podcast, funny, moving, scarily honest. Somebody else, Chris Moffat, who was in a band with me once, he said, listening to stories of magical and not so magical Christmases from GBA podcast, great stuff. Now we'll move away from the Christmas ones, but I'll play a clip from that in a minute. The writer of Sex at Dawn, one of the two writers, Christopher Ryan, was mentioned in a podcast I did with a guy called Kevin Allison from America. I linked to him on Twitter and he listened to the show and he said, love the podcast, sent pitch to Kevin at risk who's, and would love to humiliate myself publicly, not for the first time. So he's now do, done, recorded a true story with Rip, with Kevin Allison through, like, I don't know how this exactly happened, but I basically have introduced two Americans to each other and they're now doing true stories together in America, which is pretty cool. Get your brand on that, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I might be contacting Christopher Ryan because I'd like to get him on. Carl James, who's also been on the show, and I didn't include a clip from him, tweeted this after he did his conversation with me in the Invisible Picture Palace. Some juicy topics on the GBA podcast tonight. Harm, shame, guilt, abuse and forgiveness. Isn't love risking harm but intending to care? That's a quotation. Uh, and it was something I said, which is weird. Um, <laughs> Kit Lovelace, who was on the show as well, he's a... He wrote a Guardian column where he treated his life as a choose-your-own-adventure story. He sent me a tweet saying, thank you for your part in getting me motivated to write this in the first place. Our GBA talk was instrumental in that, which was very pleasing to me. And Helen Zoltzman said on Facebook, my thought is that there's so much good stuff, it must be really hard to compile this episode. My other thought is that being on GBA was a bit like therapy. And I think... Uh, most people who've been on the show can agree with that. So to round up the show, we'll have an extract from that Christmas special, which uh, was a story that I told, a true story that I told. It's just me, but this is a clip from So it. my mum, she's been in the 60s. She, she was very much, I've been there, I've done that, I've seen it. I know We're about weed. You can't put a new one on me. I know all of this stuff. And we go to this cafe. And this is the night that we've decided to go to the most expensive restaurant in Amsterdam that we can find like that does Dutch food like proper Dutch cuisine right so that's where we're going after we get high in this in this weed place and that's where we're due, due to go and my mum she says I'll just have the tea I'll just have the tea and she drinks the tea and I'm smoking a joint and she finishes her tea and then she says I'm not feeling anything it's not working and as anybody that's been around people who have taken edible weed know you have to wait for it to kick in and I pointed this out to her and she as she said she was in the 60s she knows when the weed is not working <laughs> and when it doesn't work uh and this is not working this tea is not working it's not going to work give me some of your joint i say i don't think that you want to do that mom she says i definitely want to do that so she smokes the joint we go to this expensive restaurant we sit down at the table we order our food we're really excited we order our food and I'm getting mashed potato with different things mashed in it. Like there's a, there's a green mashed potato, a pink mashed potato with some kind of extra ingredient. And then there's a hot dog sausage and some bacon-like stuff. I'm pretty high. I'm really looking forward to this meal. And I look over at my mum and I meet her eyes and her face just changes grey. And this look of realisation happens in her head and she clutches my hand and she says, Dave, I am really high right now <laughs> and I don't think I'm going to be able to eat 
the food that I've ordered. Just act natural. <laughs> and of course, I giggle at this. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I told you, I told you this would happen, but I'm just so amused and again we're in this together she's trying to bluff them that she's not stoned and i've never seen anyone act so determinedly not stoned whilst being definitely clearly stoned she was just holding the table and like physically holding herself into one solid position and i and i you know i had two meals i had all i had a starter and i had a main course and i had my starter and i had my main course and i had to deal with the uh the check situation of course she was paying so i i I didn't sign her name on the on the bill the rest of the time she was just silent and it was just so perfect just such a (laughs) perfect moment and I just felt so in in control and 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 like I'm looking after my mum and I'm actually doing something like all my life growing up I always wanted to help my mum I always wanted to 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 help the way she was to, to do something to really make her life easier and I never feel like I managed to do that and in this moment I was like right I know how to handle someone having a weed freak out I know how to handle that I can be the adult here. I can deal with this for both of us. And then we paid up. I left the restaurant and my mum says, I have to go to the toilet, which I guess is why she was so grey-faced and complicated for the entire meal. And I stood outside and I munched on a weed brownie and waited for my mum to come out. I realised that... I I started this journey by working out my own way around the city, but now I was going to have to use those skills to get me and my mum back on the trams to the hotel when she can hardly walk. And I I did it, you know, I carried her through the streets and there's Christmas singing around us and we get onto the tram and I know where I'm going and I've worked out this adult system of transport that seemed like insane when I first got there. You know, there's so many trams, there's so many bikes, there's so many cars, so many pedestrians, and the the canals, everything about it is just, it just seems so foreign. But now I've worked out how to live in this world. And I think it was the next day was Christmas Day and we went to the, this restaurant, a different restaurant, and we sat down and my mum said, you know what, fuck it, we don't have to have anything uh, Christmassy. And you know what, we don't even have to have starter than main course. If we want three starters, we're just going to order three starters. Let's just go crazy. And we, so we ended up having this meal just, just of starters and I had <laughs> lobster for the first time. And my mum, again, she showed me something. Again, on this journey, like... I haven't got, had many experiences where I can say my mum taught me something. But on this trip to Amsterdam, she taught me how to see art and she taught me how to crack the shell of a lobster. And we had this Christmas meal together. And I just remember having that Christmas dinner with her, looking at her, thinking about this crazy week that I had had with all of this kind of beauty and all of this weirdness and all of this life. And thinking, This is the Christmas spirit. This is how Christmas should feel. Like, you should feel like you're in the right place at the right time with the right person who you feel close to. And I did feel close to my mum. And I'll never forget that. 
So yeah, that's a clip from a much longer story that involves a lot more. Uh, huh? Hey, the music was fucking. Was it? Well, I think it's good. There's a lot. Of, it, it, the actual the whole episode is like 45 minutes. If it didn't have some music over talking, it really would would not work as well. But it's, it's worth having a listen to the whole story. It's uh, it's it goes. It's to a some, really good episode. It goes to some my email you didn't read out <laughs> that I played it to my family over Christmas. Did you? How did your family react to that? Of it. Me and my parents talked about drugs a lot. No, that's fine. It's, it's, it's the, yeah, it's not the drugs that's the problem for me in that episode. But that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of a family sort of listening to the bit where I'm being chased around by a guy in a monkey suit wearing a massive dildo. That's the bit that I, I'm particularly interested to know how, how that goes that? down. Was that? That's earlier in the... You have to listen to the whole thing. So, I, I mean, I'm going to skip the last thing that was going to just be the... The, the thing I said at the end of my In Conversation podcasting talk, but I'll say it now. I think that what Getting Better Acquainted is about and what I believe in is trying to find greater empathy with other human beings. And recently Liz shared a really good RSA talk thing about the empathic civilization, And that was, that was spot on. And other things that I've been reading also point me towards that. I think that the only hope, and I don't have much hope for us, is Agreed. stuff like this, Bye. like people being empathetic with each other, being in a room with people who know each other and talking and listening. Listening being the thing I wasn't, so I'm not always good at that. <laughs> uh, well. But you're getting better. I'm getting, I need to get better. I want to well. get better. <laughs> and I hopefully will get better. And are we going to have a cake now? And now, as everything breaks down into chaos in my front room, as I go out for a cigarette and the rest of the people in the room go over to light a hundred candles on a cake, it's down to me in post-production to say to you... It's been an absolute pleasure getting better acquainted with the people that I have got better acquainted with so far on this show. The hundred episodes that have gone out have been amazing experiences to have and then to re-listen to when editing later. And I've probably got a hundred more already in the bag and I am looking to have more and more conversations. I love making the show. And... I like that it's finding an audience with people and that some people are listening to it. So, thank you all for listening. Thanks to all my guests and to the specific guests from the 100th episode, all of the people who made it to my house to have a little weird lecture slash clip show in a living room that was so full with chairs. To accommodate everybody it was a great night and what I've decided to do is take a week off next week so there'll be no episode next week that's not because there aren't plenty more to come out but just because I'm really aware that after five days of episodes last week and then two episodes this week that is an overload of audio for pretty much anyone so I want to give people a bit of a chance to catch up and to get less sick of me tweeting and facebooking about this stuff 
I hope you enjoy the show. There's so many different conversations out there that really dip into them, dip into the back catalogue. They really should be listened to, a lot of them. All of them. Please listen to them. Thank you very much and goodbye. Nobody can deny. Where is nobody?